Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As Socrates said, philosophy is all about learning to die. The more we can face the fact that we're going to die the richer our life can become we can use death as a tool for living because there is only a limited amount of time that we're all given we don't know what that time frame is i think that's the last lesson you tell your kids how you're going to pass on the last bit and that's about how to die i'm noel mccarthy this is a wrinkle in time I should plan the funeral, I suppose, but it just seems so weird. That is weird. A podcast series about ageing in a world that wants us to stay young. It's the final episode, and there was only ever one place we were going to end up. Five one, baby, one in five. dying and I think everybody is I'm really afraid of not being here anymore and I do that existential thought quite a bit when we're driving around the country I'm thinking this was all here before me and this will all be here after me and there's a part of me that can't bear it that the world will just carry on being the world when I'm not in it that makes me feel really sad you have to know uh, when is the time and you've got to be prepared for that and it's the next best and biggest adventure you'll ever have We've spent the last five episodes exploring the ageing process and the impact of living for longer than at any time in our history You still have to live your life and have a good life um, I think uh, the great thing about getting old is that my, my wife is still beside me and we, we'll grow old together to the day that one of us passes away. And time is going to run out eventually, for all of us. I know exactly where I will spend the end of my life. It is uh, at our house in the Hokianga on the, on the deck, and I have said to my children, this couch here is where I will lie when I take my last breath, and that is exactly what will happen. Well, it better happen or they'll be in trouble. <laughs> so this is the death episode. Like living, dying is something that happens to everyone. That said, I haven't had much experience with it. Growing up, my mother kept photos of our dead relatives on mass cards above the television. They watched me every day while I watched Home and Away. She also made me kiss my grandfather in his casket. His skin felt waxy and he looked very handsome, like himself, but absent. Where did he go? I don't know. Where will I go? Where will we go? Honestly, I hadn't given much thought to it. The prospect feels distant. I hadn't thought about an afterlife or about how I want to die or about what I would like to happen beforehand. Not until I started asking other people for this episode. 
I learned I'm not alone in this. Death can seem like an abstract idea until it affects us directly. I guess when you get a terminal diagnosis, you have conversations with people that you've never, ever had before. Helen Kelly is in her early 50s. A former head of the Council of Trade Unions, she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer last year. And so, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people about dying and I'm very upfront with people that that's what's happening to me. And people are shocked by that, you know, um, that you can be so open about it. So I say things like, oh, well, I won't be here for the next election anyway. You know, I mean, things like that, which people are a bit like, oh, it's pretty out there. In this age of increasing longevity, where the next big anti-ageing breakthrough may be just around the corner, you can see why death isn't something we're overly keen to talk or even to think about too much. It wasn't always like this. Most civilizations throughout history looked on death as the teacher of life and gave us ways of thinking about it. Advances in medical science, along with the decline of religion, though, have given us a very different relationship with our mortality. How has this affected our understanding of what it means to be human? Our age has taken the finality of death very much outside of the picture, taking it out of the picture and Render, render us rather childish and helpless when it comes to making mortality the ground of uh, a meaningful existence. Professor Robert Harrison from Stanford University has been with us from the beginning. In his book, Juvenescence, he explains that by not placing the same value on maturity that we used to, we've changed our relationship with death as well, and we're poorer for it. Cultures generally have provided the protocols about mortality, often taking the form of religious creeds and religious practices and rituals. Uh, Philosophy, going back to Plato, as Socrates said, philosophy is all about learning to die while one lives, so that um, living becomes a flowering into the moment where death comes as the culmination and fulfillment of life rather than its mere termination. Nowadays, we believe death is the mere termination of life rather than its fulfillment. And in that sense, I think um, our experience of life becomes impoverished. I think everybody thinks in the back of their mind they might get a terminal illness, don't they? You know, every time you get a lump or something, you know, we all go and get checked out and all of that. So... I think in the back of our heads, uh, we haven't quite given up the concept that we're mortal. (laughs) The more we can face the fact that we're going to die, the richer our life can become. We can use death as a tool for living because there is only a limited amount of time that we're all given. We don't know what that time frame is. Bronnie Ware is an Australian nurse. In 2009, a blog post she wrote listing the five biggest regrets of her dying patients became an internet sensation. It's a best-selling book now in 27 languages. People were realising that that they had allowed the influences of others, the opinions of others, to, um, to total up their self-worth and so feeling like they didn't deserve to be happy and they were fitting the shoes that others had moulded for them as such. And, uh, yeah, and, and as time decreased and, and they let go of every, all, the, all the day-to-day details, they, they realised that it had actually been their own choice to, to let 
others have that power over them. But it, it is a choice, and this is something that, that was repeated to me time and again, that why did I let that person have that power over me, or why didn't I let myself take that holiday? Why did I stay in this, you know, awful marriage for 50 years and never get to travel. Um, so they were all choices that came down to people not letting themselves be happy. I'm a pretty optimistic person and I make the best of the circumstances. So I'm hoping that, you know, I will keep living until I die, you know, that there'll be a very sudden change and that during that time I'll be able to do some of the things I like. I still, I can't do everything I like now. You know, I've lost some of the capacity to walk. I was a big I used to do a lot of exercise, can't really walk very far at all. So I've already lost some of the stuff that, you know, I, I like doing. I miss not ever being well. Yeah, that's the, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm having a great time. I, you know, we call this, a, this, this period of time, I've been sick for a year of the cancer party because just people are coming to see us and, I mean, it's, an, it's amazing. It's this generosity of, of New Zealanders and of my friends and family has been incredible, which would which would never have happened. You know, we've all connected with each other and stuff like that. The regrets that Bronnie collected were straightforward. I wish I'd let myself be happier. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd lived the life I wanted. I wish I'd expressed my true feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends. So why does she think they struck such a chord with people? The blog itself is very honest and very simple because there wasn't that forethought of how it would be received. And, yeah, I think it's, it's perhaps all of that, the, the honesty, the simplicity, but mostly that it gives people permission to, um, to actually make some changes and it's wisdom that's come from people who, who are at the end. As I lose friends, and I have in the last few years lost a lot of friends in their 50s and 60s and 70s, friends and family, I, I realise how, how, you know, I, every moment, I know this is a tragic cliche, but every moment is actually quite, quite precious. So I do try to make as much of it count. I mean, having said that, I still spend just as much time being a, a couch potato and watching revolting television and slopping around and lying in the sun and reading tragic books and magazines. But um, I do that because I enjoy it. So I want to spend as much time as I possibly can uh, in this body, in this life, on this planet, um, having fun. And, and I think I have peers who feel the same way. So there's a sort of element of us that we know we're going to grow old somewhat disgracefully. If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze. One of the subjects of this podcast is the fact that we're living longer. Do you think that increased longevity puts us at a further distance from the end? You know, the end is inevitable, but science and culture can give us the message that you can put it off, you can live for longer, you can keep going. Mm, that's a fantastic question. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's... It, it's just a further denial. <laughs> it's like, oh, never mind, got another 10 years to deal with that, got another 20 years, I'll live till I'm 100 now instead of 80 or 70. So, yes, it's, it just further enhances the denial, unfortunately.
Denial may be understandable in a world where the focus is on staying young and vital, where health is presented as something over which we can expect to have increasing amounts of control. Dying's almost a personal failure in a world where centenarians are doing 100-metre runs. Take a bow, Ida Wheeling, who set a new record for a 100-metre dash in Philadelphia earlier this year. But there are other motivations for being in denial about death, like love. Some people can't even tell their children or their parents that they love each other. So, you know, to actually go beyond those, you know, that's just a, a level of emotional uh, maturity that that is too confronting for some people. So to go even beyond those words, to actually say, let's get, you know, down and dirty and talk about this real stuff, it's just too, um, not only too confronting, just just too out of bounds for them, too painful, too too foreign to even grasp the concept of it. And, uh, yeah, and that, that's just heartbreaking. I think that's the last lesson you tell your kids. You, te- you tell your kids and teach your kids how to be good people, how to be decent people, how to be truthful to themselves and the world. But then the big lesson is, okay, how are you going to pass on the last bit? And that's about how to die. Now, that's a pretty good subject. And I have to say my kids won't even kind of even contemplate me talking about that. But I do bring it up and say, this is how I think it might go. You've got to tell your kids, I reckon, that it's okay and they've got to let you die. For one family, it took a confrontation with mortality to get that conversation started. I would say that we're a typical American family with regard to uncomfortable conversations. Unfortunately, this this conversation about end of life and death and dying has is, is been somewhat taboo in our culture. And um, I think we've fallen, fallen prey to the cultural norms of, you know, don't talk about it, it won't happen. Jennifer Brokaw is a doctor from San Francisco. She's also the daughter of one of America's best-known newsmen. This is NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. Good evening and a rainy evening. In 2013, Tom Brokaw was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a kind of blood cancer that's treatable but incurable. Suddenly, um, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it came when I was 73 and I had to objectively deal with the realities of the consequences of aging and cancer. And because I looked at everything in life as a journalist, I thought this is consequential, not just for me, but for the country and for others as well. So it it really became a big part of my life, in part because of the conversations that I had been having with Jennifer about the decisions that she had to make in the ER or that families had to go through And it's the kind of thing that people generally are not very comfortable talking about, but we have to get comfortable talking about it because it's inevitable. Since his diagnosis, Tom and Jennifer have hosted a series of public talks where they speak frankly about the need for families to plan for the worst. It's easier to contemplate these things when you're not facing something serious. In fact, you know, in the the moment of getting a serious diagnosis, that it's really the worst time you can bring it up. The culture of the medical system and the industry is to allow people to believe that everything can be fixed 
on some level. And there's no discussion about the fact that really what we what we offer people is just the ability to um, ward off further decline. Tom is in remission now. He says his diagnosis brought home how unprepared he was for the end of his life. One of the lines that I've come up with in my own head here recently is that it's hard for us to think about dying because we've spent all of our life practicing to live. We haven't practiced to die. So it's uh, something that is a one-time, wholly unique event, and there is no real preparation for it because we don't know what to expect. And I think that that helps people shy away from it. Is death hard? Is it hard to die for some people? Mm, It is. And, you know, it takes nine months for the body to form and it can take a long time for the body to break down as well. One of my darling patients, I walked in one morning and said, how are you going today? And she said, oh, I'm still here. It's so hard to die. I'm, I'm sick of it. I just want to go. And at that stage, I think she was eating like one strawberry a day or half a grape. She just had no appetite left but her body wasn't ready to go. And so her frustration was that she, she felt emotionally ready to go and, and couldn't, couldn't do so. But then there's others whose bodies are deteriorating and they're still, you know, talking about future plans and holidays and what they're going to do when they, in the next few weeks and ordering new clothes that they're never going to wear. It's more in the back of my mind now uh, in part because of age and also in part because of cancer. And I have friends who are dying. And so I am thinking, uh, again, about uh, what happens, how, how I will accept it when the time comes. That's very, very hard to, uh, to kind of come to grips with or to, to imagine. Because as I said earlier, we, you know, I have a lot of practice living, but no practice dying. I should plan the funeral, I suppose, but it just seems so weird. That is weird. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I might, I might get round to it. That people will expect every minute to be jotted down, won't they? <laughs> they might not stick to it. Your reputation get... as an organiser. Yeah, yeah, they might get their own back. I so think you can um, yeah. tweet from the grave. Well, you, you can, load, load, you can, can. load them up and they can tweet after you've gone. You know how you can load them up to tweet two, two days later? So, um, I am tempted by that. None of us know ahead of time exactly how the end will play out. But we live in an era where it's possible to be kept alive by a machine, even when our brains have shut down. That makes it essential to talk not just about death, but about what we want to happen before we die. Living wills or advanced directives communicate a person's wishes if the point comes when they're no longer able to talk. They're a way of lessening worry about losing control of decisions towards the end of life. A lot of people that I have done advanced care planning with have have said in no uncertain terms that if they're no longer able to meaningfully interact with their loved ones or friends, and by that they mean, you know, contribute to the conversation or understand really what's being said to them on a meaningful level, they no longer want to be fed. They no longer want to be um, kept alive in any way or receive any kind of medical treatments. From their point of view, their, their life is has come to an end, we have to be realistic about 
you know, what a meaningful life really is and, and what it means to be a full human. And accept the fact that, you know, our brains sometimes die before our bodies do. And, um, you know, I think that we all accept that our brain is really our heart and soul of who we are. And sometimes you have to let the body die when the brain has has already left. Yeah, I put a submission in to the Lucretia Seals um, Select Committee. And uh, I don't know whether we appear. I don't know whether they're going to invite us in to appear or not, but I would if, if they did. Helen Kelly has made a submission to the Health Committee on Voluntary Euthanasia in New Zealand, which was set up after the death of lawyer Lucretia Seals. Lucretia Seals had a brain tumour and fought in court for the right to be able to die at a time of her own choosing. She lived long enough to hear that the courts had denied her request. It's a funny thing because I really believe in it and I think it's, a, you know, it's about maturity and being able to do it properly. I know there's big challenges. It's a huge ethical issue and I'm not downplaying that. And I don't resent people who have a different view than me on this issue. I think it's a really you know, hard issue, but I know that you can get a regime that works and I know that most people don't use it and I think I probably wouldn't use it in the end, but having it available would be such a relief to know that if it really gets bad and, and there's proper safeguards in place that you could you know, exit early, if you're exiting anyway. Given the size of the ageing population globally and the projected massive costs of healthcare for that population, especially in the years immediately before death, when the chronic diseases associated with ageing, like dementia, set in, as well as the moral and philosophical arguments around whether it's right to prolong human suffering, assisted dying and or voluntary euthanasia are subjects that are going to require continued thought and debate, not just in New Zealand, but all over the world. It is beginning to be part of the discussion about healthcare, not just the financial cost, but the emotional cost and how it tears up families, even those families that have some kind of an agreement before them. It's extremely pressing and not being talked about at all. Uh, Hillary Clinton is the only presidential candidate that I've heard of who has uh, address this on the campaign trail, unless, Dad, you know of somebody else. I don't no, think Donald no. Trump is talking about it. Since her diagnosis, Helen Kelly has had to make a lot of decisions about how she wants to spend the time she has left. I went to see Atal Gawande, who's written the book Being Mortal, uh, talking about that we are mortal and that we, a lot of us think we're immortal and certainly um, in the old, you know, in the 50s and, and 40s people knew they were going to die, 30s, they knew there's all sorts of ways they were going to die. But now we sort of think we're immortal. Atul Gawande is a doctor and a staff writer for The New Yorker. His book, Being Mortal, is a personal and professional exploration of dilemmas around ageing and end-of-life care. He spoke at the Auckland Readers and Writers Festival last year in conversation with David Galler, a specialist from Middlemore Hospital ICU. The room's packed, Atul. Um, this book has been an astonishing success. Have you been surprised by that? Shocked. Um, you know, so it's a difficult book. You know, by chapter two, I'm telling you about all the ways in which things go wrong in your body, from the way your brain is shrinking inside your head to the fact that, you know, by the time you're 40, the light is already fading that gets to your retina and how your teeth fall apart. And, you know, I interviewed about 200 patients and families about their experience with aging and terminal illness. Um, 
and then interviewed dozens of, well, scores, really, of palliative care specialists, nursing home aides, hospice workers. Uh, and there were some people who were very good at knowing how to talk about these situations. And what they helped me understand was that everybody has priorities besides living longer. The great mistake we make in medicine is that, um, and in society, is that uh, we don't necessarily recognize that people have priorities in their life besides living longer. Atoll Gawande paints a very important picture that doctors can overtreat you and make you sick, and that if you've only got a little while to live, that period of time could be much more pleasant without the treatment. Doesn't make that much difference, and you can be kept well and talk to people and say goodbye to people and participate in things while you're still alive. And uh, those are the conversations that I'm having with my doctors now. It's always a toss-up. What would this do to me? What can I do? How would it work? As someone who knows that she's dying, Helen Kelly has a different perspective on ageing. I would have liked to have gone into Parliament at some point. Um, I obviously thought I'd outlive my mother. Um, yeah, I mean, I think everybody plans, thinks about their old age, but I don't think anybody takes it for granted. That must be hard for your mother, is it? Oh, yeah. Do you have those conversations with her? I, she knows what's going on, but she doesn't want to have those conversations, yeah. But there are people who do want to have those conversations. My mum lives in a rest home, and so I you know, regularly go there and, and talk to everybody around and all that. It's a massive place. Um, but the conversations have always been more superficial. Now they've got a place to open with me, because they know who I am. And, um, and we have these amazing conversations and we talk about where they are, you know, because they're in a rest home and where would they like to be. They're very interested in cannabis <laughs> because they're sore. And honestly, they can't cope with those strong, strong pain relief. And their children have told them, you should be taking cannabis, you know. So they're saying, where are you getting the cannabis from? Helen's illness has turned her into a campaigner for medical use of cannabis. I've got tumours. In fact, I've just been told why my hip is so sore. It's got growing, just growing quite crazy. And it works. You know, it just eases the pain. And, you know, some people say it's got medical benefits as well in terms of anti-inflammatories and things like that. And maybe that's why it works, actually. But I'm taking it um, for pain. Maybe it's not surprising that Helen Kelly is having deeper conversations with older people since her diagnosis. Old age brings us closer to the end of life, and maybe there's a shared fraternity between those of us looking death in the face. It's a hard reality to engage with, unless it's one's own reality, or should that be until it's one's own reality. But the popularity of books like Being Mortal and Regrets of the Dying illustrates the hunger we have to engage with death and the vacuum that exists around the subject now compared to other times in history. We are the beneficiaries of a highly successful set of institutions and a political order, social order, uh, as well as um, scientific revolutions that have enabled us to go on enhancing our lives and benefiting from the increasing youthfulness that the um, society confers upon us. The danger, in my view, is that one forgets the lessons of maturity and adulthood and above all, you know, what it means to become responsible for one's own mortality, where death is indefinitely deferred. Uh, one, it, it can very easily disappear from the horizon of one's lived experience 
and uh, one finds that when the time comes, one is like a child vis-a-vis this irreducible fact of human existence, which is death. By denying um, the inevitability of what's to come, you know, you, you can sort of cruise along and think you've got all the time in the world or you just don't realise just how precious the gift of time is until you're exposed to death through family or friends or someone close or through your own terminal illness. And what comes next, if anything? I've thought about my, you know, reasons for being an atheist a lot in my life and talked about it. Obviously, it's the sort of thing you debate and stuff. And, uh, you know, that's just what I believe. I'm an atheist, yeah, I don't believe in any further life or super being or anything. And uh, nothing's going to change that. I was raised Catholic. So I grew up with a belief that I'd go to heaven. Where that might be or what that might look like, I don't know. Like I said at the start, I don't really think about it. When it comes to my own death, I've tried to keep a mental balancing act going while making this series. On the one hand, death is useful at pulling life into focus. It's so much easier to pay attention, to enjoy every moment when you think about not being here. On the other hand, I'm a bit like Michelle at the beginning of this episode, overwhelmed by existential sadness at the thought of a world that will keep turning without me in it. But I'm part of the world now, and that connection makes the thought of death less scary. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives my green age, that blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. And I am dumb to tell the crooked rose my youth is bent by the same wintry fever. Dylan Thomas was only 19 when he wrote those lines. He died when he was only 39. Aging is part of living, so is dying, and life is what we know, even if the best is yet to come and heaven is waiting. Life is home. It's the biggest leap we take, stepping out of it. I mean, a lot of people say, how are you? And you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm all right and I'm doing OK. And they'll want you to tell them that you're going to get better. They'll say, but you're going to be all right, aren't you? And it's just not right to say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be fine. You know, and, I, and I, so I do say, mm, not really, but I'm all right at the moment, you know, and they leave it at that, but it's interesting. They want a reassurance that I'm on to it. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 